Hey everyone, it is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to this week's episode of Scale Up. And you know what? You are in for a treat today because we are going to go backwards and forwards for the next hour on the topic of entrepreneurship. And who better to have that conversation with than the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, Jason Pfeiffer. Now, you can imagine that a conversation about entrepreneurship could go anywhere. Lots of different angles, pathways, rabbit holes, tangents. But considering everything that's going on in the world today, I thought, why don't we focus this week on adaptability? How can we embrace change? How can we adapt fast? And most importantly, how can we future-proof our business when there are so many things going on around us. And having Jason on the show is, is such a treat because he is talking day in and day out with different types of entrepreneurs, business owners, going through all different things with their business. So I thought, what can we learn from the guy who's having so many of these amazing, powerful conversations? We better make sure that what we're really focused on is not like self-indulgence, or the belief that people just inherently want the thing that we're making and therefore we could do whatever we want with it, but rather that we must respect truly the greatest thing that people could possibly give us, and that is their time. So not just adaptability, we're also gonna get into communication and how powerful storytelling, when done well, can absolutely influence what you are trying to do with your business. And we're also gonna get into one of my favorite topics, which is the transfer of value. Now, as entrepreneurs, we tend to attach our identity to the things we do on a daily basis, but we have to realize that the true value we create is the external value that helps others. You don't always know if you're at the end of something. Some things have definitive ends, but a lot of things don't. So enjoy this episode. I thoroughly enjoyed geeking out with Jason. It's one of those conversations that could have gone on literally for hours. I hope you get a heap of value from it, but most importantly, I hope you get some, some tips, some nuggets to future-proof your business today and ongoing. Welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley, Jason Pfeiffer. Hey everyone, it is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to another week, another great episode of Scale Up. So today we are going to get into all things resilience and change because my guest is none other than Jason Pfeiffer, who is the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. And we're going to be talking about startup, scale-up, all that sort of stuff, and his new book, Build for Tomorrow. So welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you for having me. So how did you get into this? <laughs> we're gonna, how do you go from being like, you know, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, which is a great mag and, and one I've read for many years, Thank you. to kind of getting into this idea of workplace change and how you show up and resilience and opportunity? How does that all kind of mesh together? You know, it starts like this. It starts by asking, or rather, it starts by listening to the questions that people ask you. So I became editor-in-chief in 2016. And I'll be honest, I was I was a media guy. You know, I, my background is in media and mm -hmm. in being an editor at many other magazines. I didn't really think of myself as an entrepreneur, let alone a um, a, a kind of lead, you know thought leader is a term I hate in entrepreneurship. But as I 
started going out, being interviewed on podcasts, being uh, invited to speak at conferences, you know, people would ask me this question over and over again. And the question was, what are the qualities of successful entrepreneurs? I started to get curious, why am I getting this question, the same question from so many people, right? It's this uncoordinated attack. Uh, uh, and I realized, you know, if you listen to the questions that people ask you, what you discover is that what they are really doing is telling you what they think your value is to them. And oh, wow. if you can, <laughs> we're getting, getting, we're getting deep it? right away. Okay, let's, let's, uh, you know, yeah, I, I like to I like to jump into the deep end. Perfect. So it's you know, but it's true that people are telling you what they think your value is to them, and if it, that really puts you, if you can recognize what that is and where it's coming from, then you can be a step ahead in providing value back to them. And so I realized the reason why people are asking me this question is because they see me as a pattern matcher. I am the guy who gets access to everybody. And as a result mm. of that, I can see the patterns in success. And that's what people want to know. They see me as a pattern matcher. And I thought to myself, if I can, if I can understand how to be that person for them, because I'm in the position to do it, but my background doesn't really enabled me to do it because I'm just a media guy. But if I can really immerse myself in this world and understand at a granular level what is driving thinking, then I think that I'm more valuable than perhaps I am right now as just a media guy. So I spent years on this project. The project was basically understand the answer to this question and how to be the person who can answer this question. And the answer that I came to was that the most successful people that I was meeting were the most adaptable. That was the pattern. The single most consistent important quality was adaptability. It drove success. And I found that that was really the thing that had driven me in my own career. I had reinvented myself many times and that I really connected to it and related to it. And I realized, look, I'm never going to be, unlike you, I am not the guy who can tell you how to specifically build and then sell a you know a a, a, a company. Um, but I can tell you how people think, and I can tell you how to build yourself, and I can tell you how that kind of thinking can apply to building great things. And that's where I want to live because I now understand the answer to the question and the answer to how to be the person who answers the question. Wow. Okay. That, now that's a good opening. Thank you. <laughs> so, so let's let's play with this a little bit. Yeah. There, I've got lots of different. I, I, one of the things that people say about me on this show is I'm incredibly curious and I go mm -hmm. down certain tangents. Great. Um, first thing that kind of strikes me with what you said is, you know, and I was joking a little bit about let's go deep early here, but mm -hmm. how do you how do you stop everything that's going on in your world? Right. I assume you're a busy guy. Yeah. And give yourself the space to really think about all of that right like did you have to go away and meditate for a few days and then kind of go deeper in your thinkers because that's not that's not a superficial answer <laughs> no what right. i asked no it's not I, I i do not know how to go away for a few days and meditate <laughs> not in my arsenal um no here's what i do I, I was recently talking to someone who studies how people learn and she gave me this word that I instantly recognized as, as the thing that I do, which is the thing that everybody does, which is uh, the word is scaffolding. So that's how we learn. We learn through scaffolding, which is to say, like, you know, the reason why you can read an article about a black hole or whatever, whatever thing you're fascinated about, you know, 
ancient mm-hmm. architecture. Some random thing. Um, you read it and you find it interesting, and then right afterwards, you cannot remember any part of it. Right? I mean, how how we how often do is, does that happen? It happens to me all the time. Or I listen to some podcast about the Sumerians, and I think this is fascinating, and then I cannot remember anything about the Sumerians. Um, why? The answer is because the way in which we learn is through scaffolding, which is to say that you have a foundation of knowledge about something. And then when you come upon new knowledge, it either gets attached to the scaffolding, to the existing structure of knowledge that you have, or if it or it doesn't because you don't have it. And the stuff that you don't remember is the stuff that doesn't attach because you don't have the foundation of knowledge. I don't know anything else about the Sumerians. Therefore, I listen to this podcast. It doesn't have anything to attach itself to. But when I go out and I learn something about uh, the podcast advertising marketplace, well, I know a lot about that. And so now I can take that new fact and I can attach it to this other stuff that I know. And that's how we learn. That's basically what I try to do for building new bodies of knowledge, too. I start with what's familiar to me. And what was familiar to me was this recognition that um, what entrepreneurs were doing is what I was doing, which was taking large risks in my in my life and my career, in having a vision for something but not knowing exactly how to achieve it. And then what I wanted to know was, how were they thinking about that? And somebody would tell me a story, and I would find that story to be really compelling. And then the next time I talked to somebody else, I would tell them the story that I just heard, right? Oh, you know, that reminds me of that guy from MailChimp who just told me this story about this thing that he did when he was trying to figure out how to be the leader that his company needed now. And I would tell it to that other person. And that other person would say, oh, that's so interesting. That reminds me of this other thing. And then and then what I would do is over time, I would build this, this, this collection of coherent insights, and I would test really in the in real time how something that I came upon lives and fits into somebody else's mind, and out of that would come these insights and these kind of fascinating conversations. And I found that the things that I do and the the ways that I talk now and. You'll find that I, I I tend to talk in almost complete anecdote because I learn from I learn through telling stories and then hearing other people's stories that when you start with a genuine interest and insight, and then you very consciously build upon it by gathering new insights and information, and then at the same time testing that stuff out on the other people that you meet in the real world. It starts to build and cohere. You start to build the structure that you're looking for. You start to build the scaffolding so that when new information comes, it fits or it doesn't fit and then you forget. I've heard a similar way of it being expressed. Um, The way it was explained to me was was a compounding effect. Whereas a lot of people, if you imagine a building and everyone's trying to get to the top for whatever reason, right? So they're they're trying to find the escalator or the stairs or the elevator or whatever it is. And instead of instead of going through each floor and exploring each floor and, and learning what they need to learn before they then go up, think about like a computer game, right? You know, you go up to the next level. Most people try and get to the top, but they don't build the foundation. That's right. And if you spend time building the foundation, as you go up those different floors, you start to get what you're describing, which is this this kind of everything builds around each other. And then you become more of an expert, if you like, or perceived as an expert, certainly more knowledgeable because you've you've got all this information that you are then linking together so that's that's right right. and and look the the difference between those two approaches is patience right because running to the top of something is an impatient way to be and you may be able to get to the top but you don't have much of a foundation underneath of you I, i am a long game thinker 
I don't care how long it takes me to get somewhere as long as I know where I'm moving towards. So this is, the, I mean, the, the, that I am able to talk like this and to have conversations with folks like you is because of years and years and years worth of work in which I didn't, I mean, look, people were asking me to keynote their events and 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 I, I, I said no for a long time because I didn't think that I had anything to say. Um, and it took time for me to figure it out. And I would test things in small ways. I mean, I, you know, I, I have this kind of unique position in which I, I, I can reach audiences, right? I, I write a column in the magazine every month. I, I have all sorts of, you know, social and other avenues to reach people. But what I, what I really thought of myself as constantly doing was small testing, uh, you know, almost, a sort of beta testing ideas and seeing what sticks and then building the, the the building the stuff that works into a coherent philosophy and then building from there which is how i go from a magazine article to a podcast to a book to keynotes i mean right like when when you when you build like this you build something that just is a lot more solid it just you just have to you just have to agree to yourself that it's going to take years to do. Yeah. And, and to your word, be patient. Do you see yourself then more as a, as a explorer slash curator? I do. That's a really nice word for it. Um, I am, you know, it's funny when I, when I, I had a lot of imposter syndrome at the very beginning of this, because like I said to you, I don't come from a background of building and selling companies. I come from a background of media. And now I'm talking to people who do build and sell companies. And and I, I had to I had to get comfortable with what it was that I had of value to them and what I didn't. Um and I mean I remember I remember going I, I one of my very my very actually not one of my my very first talk on a stage I opened for Marcus Limonis of the Prophet. Oh wow, CNBC. that'd be fun. <laughs> he was great. Oh, he is so good. He's such a good speaker. Um, but you know what he does? What he does is he goes out and basically runs a group therapy session. So he will open with a little bit about himself, and then he'll basically ask people what they're grappling with in their businesses, like tangibly grappling with right now. And somebody will raise their hand and he'll pull them up on stage and talk to them and then reach some other point and say, you know, who else has dealt with something like this? And then bring somebody else up on stage. And it's fascinating. And what I, as I watched him, what I was seeing was a very broad mastery of business subjects. That guy can have a deep conversation with you about how to price a product. Right. And, um, and I was thinking that's not information that I know. Um, so what do I, what am I doing here? How do I belong here? And the more time I spent thinking about that, the more I realized, well, look, you know, some people are really good at tactics. Some people are really good at people and I'm really good at people. Uh, that's what my career is. It's understanding people and it's figuring out how to tell their stories and their insights in a way that are useful to others. So let me lean into that. When I, I, I came to, when I get hired and I, I travel all over the place speaking to speaking to companies you know incredibly experienced smart people and they bring me in and i stand up i stand up in front of them and the very first thing that i say to them is i am not here to tell you how to run your business because you know how to do that not me but what i can tell you is that i have access to incredibly smart people and i'm very good at understanding how they think and i want to share with you 
the important insights that I have and how they think through challenges so that you can think like them. And then I have people's attention because I'm, I'm not trying to present something that I am not. And I am offering something that I think people are not generally that good at. And, uh, and I lean into that. And, and I, I just, you know, it's like nobody, n- nobody, uh, nobody said Shaquille O'Neal is a bad basketball player because he couldn't shoot three pointers. Uh, or who cares? free throws, to be honest. Or free throws. <laughs> also, he was very bad at that. That's true. But again, who cares? Doesn't matter because he was really good at the stuff he was good at. And what I have found is that entrepreneurs recognize that about themselves too. I, I mean, I, I've, I've just heard so many fascinating stories about people who slam into a recognition that they are really, really good at something, but not everything. And then they have a decision to make. And that decision is, do I respect this and try to maximize the thing that I am really good at? Or do I offer people a subpar version of me on the things that I'm not good at? And I think the most successful people pick the former. Yeah, they double down on what they're great at. And sometimes there's miscommunication, I think, around this idea. I mean, I remember when I was working in the corporate world, and I, I came from the um, the magazine world, actually, um, oh. m- many, many years ago. That's another story for a different podcast. But <laughs> um, but it was funny, like, I remember in that corporate world, there was this idea that you you get assessed again, strengths and weaknesses, and then you have to kind of work on the things that are your development areas. Mm-hmm. And I always had a bit of an issue with that because my belief was if I'm really good at something and that makes me unique and remarkable in that thing, surely I, I want to I really own that, right? And of course, yeah. other people can be brought in if other skills or capabilities are needed. Because I believe that to be true. If we try and um, dilute all the things that we could be good at and miss the thing that we could be fantastic or great or the best in the world at, then who do you become, right? That's, but um, you know, I, I want to draw on one thing quickly just before we oh, yeah, go, because sure. I, I listen intently. Um, there's massive value, in my opinion, to being able to take a lot of information and synthesize it in a way that creates value that you can then communicate, mm-hmm. right? And so, so what I'm hearing from you is you, you must have had, I don't know, many hundreds of conversations with very successful business people. Oh, yeah, but more the, than that. Yeah. Well, thousands, right? But the, <laughs> the skill to be able to take that information and be able to communicate it through the various mediums, that's pretty specific and pretty powerful, right? Uh, I'd like to think so. You, you know, I mean, what it comes down to me is I, I try to remind myself of everything that I make that nobody wants the form in which it's being delivered, which is to say, nobody wants a magazine. I make a magazine. Nobody wants a magazine. I write a book. Nobody wants a book. We're listening to, people are listening to a podcast right now. Nobody wants a podcast. What they want is something that's useful to them inside of that medium. And the medium that they're selecting just happens to be the one that works best for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we better make sure that what we're really focused on is not like self-indulgence or the belief that people just inherently want the thing that we're making and therefore we could do whatever we want with it, but rather that we must respect truly the greatest thing that people could possibly give us. And that is their time. And so I want to, I want to make sure that the things that I am gathering for people are in the greatest respect for their time. And so what I tend to do is 
go through the world talking to people and listening for crystallizing insights and moments, right? Um, I've had, I mean, it's funny, you know, like I, I get, I get to talk for good lengths with incredibly successful, famous people. Uh, you know, I'll have a conversation. I had a conversation with Ryan Reynolds, with, with the rock, with Richard Branson. And, um, and what I tend to take away from these things is like a single sentence that they said or a single little anecdote, because I know that that's the thing that people are going to remember. I I, I remember once talking to um, this guy, Roman Mars. He hosts a podcast very popular called 99% Invisible. And he told me this really interesting thing, which was that in every episode that as he's making the episode, he becomes aware of the single thing from this episode that people will remember, right? <laughs> he's putting a lot of time into this. It's going to be 30 minutes long. It's going to have a million facts and insights into it. It's a highly produced show. People are going to remember a single thing, one fact. He's got to know what that is, and he's got to make sure that it comes through crystal clear. And everything else is sort of supporting information or you know whatever it is. It's the rocket boosters that'll fall into the sea after the rocket gets out of the atmosphere. And and I often just think of information that way. People are going to remember one thing. So what is it? And how do you make sure that you're delivering it to them in a way in which it's going to it's going to hit them and they're going to remember it because it connects with their scaffolding because it connects with the way that they already think or know the world. It connects with some something that they already wonder about, something they already grapple with. If I can talk to somebody for an hour and find one single thing that I think somebody else can remember and then figure out how to deliver that one single thing to somebody else, I am valuable. And and and, and I think that oftentimes, you know, we we as entrepreneurs, which we our instinct is to do the opposite. Our instinct is to cram information into something to be as dense as possible. You got a minute of somebody's attention, you're going to try to throw a bazillion facts and figures at them and they will not remember any of that. They won't. But if you spend your time on one thing that they damn sure will remember, they will remember you and that matters. Do you think sometimes just on that point that people if if you have a let's say we have a conversation here for 40 45 minutes or whatever. Yeah. And we will talk about a range of different things, right? Mm -hmm. there, there's going to be a different piece of information that's going to resonate depending on where somewhere someone is at. Yeah. Right. So, so it's interesting. I mean, I, li I like the philosophy of, I mean, we've got so much clutter and so much noise and so much distraction that actually mm -hmm. trying to filter has value, but how do you know what message to pull out because everyone's at a different place? Uh, so, well, first of all, you know, I, what I found is that the same information can resonate with people differently depending on where they're at. Okay. That, that's been it's so, so interesting to experience that because I go around, you know, I, I travel around and I'll tell a lot of the same stories to people. And then people will come up and they'll tell me vastly different reactions to them based on the information uh, or based on their own, their own lives. So, you know, what, what I, what I want to be mindful of is starting where people are. You know, I, I think one of the greatest mistakes that innovators make, and uh, uh, and or anybody makes, storytellers make, it doesn't matter, is that they are so convinced of the value of the thing that they have that they forget that it doesn't make sense to other people, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Assume I mean, knowledge and and all that sort of stuff. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and I think that the greatest, the greatest communicators and the greatest product builders and the greatest marketers 
are people who start with where are the people that I'm trying to reach? And then how do I build what I like to call a bridge of familiarity for starting from the person you're trying to reach back to you rather than the other way around? Um, you know, like a, a small thing that I've become kind of obsessed with lately is there's a product called Lomi. It is a, it is like a at-home compactor, uh, uh, not compactor, um, uh, 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 composter. Okay. And, um, so, uh, it, it's, you know, it looks like a white tub and you put all your food scraps in it and then you hit a button and it does some kind of churning and it turns it into compost and just some sort of like, you know, dirt sludge thing that you then pour out. Uh, and, um, if you go to Lomi's website, you will not find the word compost anywhere, anywhere. They talk about food waste. And the reason I called the company up because I was so interested in this is like, you make a composter and you do not use the word compost. Why? And the answer was because as soon as people hear the word compost, they immediately sort themselves into I am a composter or I am not a composter, right? Either like, oh, yes, <laughs> I am. I am willing to put the work into like compost, which is this kind of messy thing, right? Or no, I, whatever that is, it's too complicated. So they attach their identity to the, the term. And therefore, you do not actually reach people where they yeah. are or enough people where they are. But when you talk about food waste, everyone has food waste. And everybody understands that food waste is a problem. It's a pain point for everybody. It's, you know, it's smelly or where you don't know what to do with it. And so by not starting with the thing that sorts people, but rather starting where most people actually are, which is a familiarity of something called food waste, then you get to build more of a bridge from them to your product. That was a very intentional thing that they did, and I love it. And I see versions of it in business all the time. And it's the thing that, the reason I bring this up is because it's it's really the answer to the way that I try to think, which is, which is, it's not it's not always about giving people like a large menu of things, but rather it's about making sure that you understand where they are so that you can take the thing that you most have to offer and make sure that it connects most to them. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Because I think a lot of times people don't think about how something's going to be heard, right? Or understood. They think about yeah. it from their perspective. And I see that, you know, I used to work a bit in high level consulting mm. and there was so much of that assumed knowledge, right? And sometimes I found that people in that world would hide behind that mm -hmm. because it made them look or, or perceived to be smarter, et cetera, et cetera, which, you know, doesn't have a lot of value. For no, <laughs> God, I hate that. It annoys I, the hell I hate, out of me. It annoys everybody. That's It annoys everybody. And also... If you are not communicating clearly, you are not communicating. It, 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 I think people often hide, you know, it's like there's assumed knowledge, but there's also just simply that people sometimes don't have something to say. And so they 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 hide that they don't have something to say behind yep. a lot of a lot of jargon that makes it appear as if they have something to say. And I, I, that's this is no good. Not good. Let's um let's go back to a word you used a little while ago. Um, yep. Adaptability. Um, I'm curious, thousands of conversations with successful business people, right? Mm -hmm. Through the magazine and other, other mediums. Why that word? Cause that's the word you said that, you know, typified to some extent the people who are successful. Yeah. Curious. Uh, why that word instead of some other word to mean the same thing or you mean why? Yeah, that? Well, cause I think, you know, like it's interesting to be able to use the, the word I used previously synthesize to be able to bring down 
all of the conversations you've had into one, let's call it trait or characteristic. It's mm-hmm. I'm just just curious as to as to why that, because there must have been many other things that make entrepreneurs successful, right? But that's the one that sticks out for you. Well, I think that that's the one that drives long-term success, right? I, okay. I mean, um, because sure, you know, short-term success can be easier in a way. You can have a sharp idea, uh, and um, and that idea can connect. The problem is that that idea isn't going to last, and so the, I mean, I you know, I was finding as I was meeting people that the ones that I was most fascinated with were the ones that were building in the reality that something would change into the way in which they act right now. Um, here's a story. One of my one of my favorites uh, uh, of people who who you know kind of told me this genre of decision making. Uh, so there's a there's a guy named Sam and he started a brewery in Delaware called Dogfish. And uh, and in the early days, Dogfish made this beer called 90 Minute IPA, and uh, um, and people really liked it. Uh, just to be clear, for those who don't know beer very well, so 90 Minute is is a reference to nine percent alcohol by volume, which was a, it's a very it's a very very strong beer. That beer knocks you on the floor. It's not the sort of beer I would drink, to be honest. That's like a yeah. Belgian beer. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, <laughs> it's really, really it's not it's not what I would drink either. It's really strong. Um, that is a get drunk fast beer. Yeah, and uh, and then IPA is a is a, you know India Pale Ale, a popular bitter style of beer, hoppy. So um, so anyway, he makes this ninety minute IPA, and it's it's popular. And his distributor says, you know, Sam, people like this beer, but uh, uh, I, I, why don't you make a version that people can drink standing up? You know, like just like have one with like a lower <laughs> alcohol volume. And so he says, that sounds good. And so he makes 60 minute IPA, 6% alcohol by volume. Now here's a far more drinkable beer. You can have a few, you're still on your feet and people love this beer and then they need this beer and then they have to have this beer. Like they need, and they are uh, sales on this sales for this product are just spiking and they are on track to become 75 to 80% of all sales of dogfish. 75 to 80% of everything that this guy sells is going to be this one beer, a 60-minute IPA. And, you know, a lot of people would say, well, this is fantastic. What else is the point of business if not to have a hit product and then to make a bunch of money off of it? This is the short-term success that I'm talking about. But Sam does not think that. Sam thinks, I have a problem. And the problem is that tastes change. And that means... That although this beer is popular right now, at some point, IPAs will not be as popular as they were in that moment. And so if Sam just rides this thing all the way to the bank, then what will happen is that every bar and every restaurant and every everywhere will carry 60-minute IPA. And the only way in which consumers interact with his company, Dogfish, is through this one beer, 60-minute IPA which means that he is a hot IPA brand for a while. And then when tastes change, he becomes an old brand. And that is death. So he makes a decision. And the decision is that he caps sales of his best-selling product at 50%. So could have become 75 to 80% of all sales of dogfish, caps it at 50%. And You mean like a limited edition release type of thing? No, I just mean that when 
a lot when clients call and they want to carry this beer, he is out of it. He is is just simply limiting the amount of beer that they are producing. It's not, he's not, he's not using it as some sort of marketing scarcity tactic. He's not a scarcity tactic, not a limited release, not a, not a hot drop on Instagram. This is just, we're out of the product. We just don't have the product. And I asked Sam, were you ever concerned about this? Because people were angry at him for this. All right. You got a lot of people who want this hot beer, particularly like locally or regionally. And um, and you know, you got you got a restaurant in town and people want you to carry the like the local beer that they like, and you don't have it because you can't get it because Sam says that they're out. Um and they're furious at Sam. I mean, they're he was describing people to screaming at him on the streets. And I've walked around Delaware with Sam. Sam is Beyonce in Delaware. People love him in Delaware. He's a he's a celebrity in Delaware. Um, because this 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 brewery became a big thing. But um, anyway, he said no because look, he didn't worry because this is first of all there was no other option. Because the other option was to let I this IPA be a runaway hit and define his brand forever. But also because whenever people came and they said we would like to carry sixty minute IPA, he would say we're 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 um we make it really fresh. We're trying to keep up with demand. We're really sorry we don't have it right now. It's just you know sort of true, sort of a lie. And um in the meantime, why don't you try some of our other styles? Why don't you carry our saison? Why don't you try our pumpkin ale? And as a result, Sam translates this interest in his company into carrying all sorts of products of his. And that is how he defines dogfish, not as a IPA brand, but rather as an innovative brand. And that is how he sold the company for $300 million a few years ago. Now, I love that story Mm. because to me, that is an entrepreneur who is thinking long-term, who is building the necessity for adaptability straight into the decisions that he makes today. He is willing to take short-term pain for long-term gain. And I've heard versions of this over and over again. So, you know, you asked me why I why I, I zeroed in on adaptability. And the reason is because, because at some point in everybody's journey, they run into either a moment that they expected or they, they didn't expect when the, the foundation of the thing that they're building is challenged or changes. And they have to be really good figuring out what to do next. They may not have to, they may not know immediately what to do next, but they, they, they have to be able to figure it out, which means that as a starting point, they have to have one enthusiasm for figuring it out. And two, a clarity of purpose for themselves that goes beyond the individual product that they make or the service that they offer, right? Sam understands that he is not in the business of selling IPAs. He's in the business of creating innovative beer for people who love beer. And, as a result, he knows that his long-term focus has to be on that. He has to respect that. That's the reason why I talk about adaptability and why I settled on it as a thing. Because, you know, I mean, just to go back to the, we spent the first 30 minutes of our conversation kind of talking about storytelling. And um, and what I found is that like, look, that story that I just told you is a, is a tactical business story, but it's really a thinking story. It's really about how somebody thought through a problem ahead of time. And when we're when we're when people are are consumed by and of course they are consumed by the day-to-day operations of and needs of their business they often do not have the brain space 
to step back and and do that long-term thinking, right? The difference between working on and working in your business. And uh, and, and and I think it's just incredibly important to be telling stories that people remember and 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 raising lessons from people who have done it so that as people are stuck in their business, they are reminded, oh, wait a second, I need to step back and work on my business too. And above the business sometimes. And above the business, right? yes, sir. So well, um, that's a great story, by the way. And, and I couldn't help but start to sort of put my hat on and start to evaluate the uh, strategy <laughs> behind that. But there is an interesting point I'll make here, which is when when you acquire a company and you mentioned that he sold his business for a, a decent amount of money, yeah, you're not paying for the value today, you're paying for the value tomorrow, right? Most mm -hmm. people don't, don't appreciate that. So we mm -hmm. sold a company for 14 times EBITDA for $2.3 billion in 2017. Um, and the reason we achieved that, which was above what the market expected us to exit for, was because we had such a robust story and I suppose metrics behind it, proof points of uh, predictable, sustainable growth going yeah. into the future because we didn't make short-term decisions, right? So right. that's why Sam did that because, you know, anyone can make a decision about income right? You know, I'm going to double down on my 6% IPA because I can make more money for the next 12 months. Right. But it takes discipline to be able to sit back and go, actually, there's more value in building the category and becoming more famous in that way. But, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of points in that story, I think, just beyond the adaptability piece. There's some lessons in that around what I think a lot of business owners don't really appreciate, which is value and, and let's say revenue or income are different things. Right. Yeah. That's cool. right. I, I I love that. I mean, I I I'm I'm sitting back. I want you to I, I'd be interested in more analysis of that story because that, <laughs> you know, I mean that story to me has always been about this one thing, but it's it's funny that uh uh you know, one of the things that I to go back to my scaffolding thing, you know, like one of the things that I've found is that sometimes I will a story will really appeal to me because it represents one thing and then Two years into telling this story a bunch of times to people, I realized that wait a second, this story is actually about something else, uh, and uh, and I start to utilize it in a different way. It has a different lesson, a different purpose. Uh, and, and, you know, that's the funny thing about stories is that um, you know, much like we were talking about before, they're going to mean different things to different people. So I, I mean, I, I'm I'm very very interested in what else you hear in that anecdote. Well, I'll tell you what's what's interesting to me, right? And I think this is where we can probably geek out a little bit because, mm -hmm. you know, I've been doing this podcasting thing now for about three years, 300 episodes, right? And I've had probably the thing I didn't appreciate, maybe, maybe that you didn't recognize initially when you got into the media game yeah, is the privilege of these conversations, oh, right? Yeah. So I'll Without come question. off this and, and I'll learn, I'm learning stuff every time I'm learning from you now, Jason, and, and I've had some different, really crazy, different perspectives from all sorts of people on, on my show. And you've obviously had more of those. And I think, I think what's interesting about that really is you start to see patterns. So, so yes. the reason I was so curious about the word adaptability is I, I definitely resonate with that. Um, I also resonate with the view that the people who, who tend to be very successful are the ones who have a high degree of risk tolerance. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, and whether that comes from confidence or an ability to frame fear in a certain way or whatever else, you know, there's that. Yeah. But if we come back to Sam's story, you know, as you were telling the story, which I said, it's a great story around value creation, my world. What I also heard there was, you know, he's obviously built the ability to be able to work, you know, on and above the business. Right. He 
can think expansively 30,000 feet and also be granular, which is another mm -hmm. trait that I've identified with people who create success. Uh, and probably the big thing is there's a, there's a, a sense of confidence that comes from clear purpose, right? Yeah. Cause like, you know, if you're clear on vision and purpose, you know, mission all that, if you're clear what you're trying to create, you have that in game. It may not be a money in game, it might be a purpose impact driven thing or whatever. It's, it's easier for people, I think, to, to be able to make decisions. doesn't mean every decision is easy, but where you, if you know where you're going, that makes it work. And I'm curious, I talk about that about Sam, but I'm curious about if, if that's some of the things I just mentioned, there are other things you've seen from the very successful entrepreneurs that you've spoken to as well as Sam. Oh yeah, sure. Sure. I mean, I, I love that analysis. You know, I mean, one of the things you, you'd mentioned risk and risk tolerance, um, something that I hear fairly frequently from people who make what seem like high stakes decisions, not seem like who make high stakes decisions is that they, they start to understand risk with more, um, they understand risk. I'm trying, it's like, I have a visual in my head of a dimension. They understand more dimensions of risk, I guess, yeah. than, than others. Right. Um, you know, I think I, I think I hear a lot is, is, well, look, yeah, it was, it was a risky move, but I weighed it against the risk of not making the move, mm. uh, which I think that people often don't think to do. Um, but if you, if you go back to, if you go back to Sam, then the decision that he made was risky, but but really the risk of not acting was was much higher um, because he knew exactly what would happen. Uh, I mean, in a way, you know, it's like he was he had seen this guy. This guy has spent his career in the beer industry. He's seen many of these things come and go. And so he knows exactly what happens to a brand that gets defined by one thing. He knows and there's no reason to believe that his story would be any different. So, yeah, he has he doesn't know what will happen if he limits sales of his best-selling product, but he knows pretty well what will happen if he do, if he doesn't do so it. So he's got to do something different. So he's yeah. got to do something, right? And and that I, when you start to think about risk like that, that sometimes the risk of inaction is simply larger than the risk of action, then you really you you create a really helpful reframing. Um because Look, you can take an action, and if it doesn't work, you can take another action. Uh, right? You can, you can. There's, you, you aren't committed forever to the one thing that you uh, that you do. Um, and so I see that as a very consistent quality. But I'll, and I'll go back to one other thing, which I had mentioned um, in passing in that story about Sam, but it's something that I also see very consistently among entrepreneurs, which is that they have a clarity of purpose that they can articulate in a very simple way. And that clarity of purpose is detached from the specific thing that they do. Um, I, I, I cannot express to you enough the importance of that. Um, and I, that sounded really abstract. So I'll be, no, it, it wasn't actually cause yeah. And, and I'll, I'll let you kind of finish, but I just want to say something. It was funny as you were, as you were speaking, the word in my head was also detachment mm -hmm. and we'll come into this in a second, but the idea of also being able to remove emotional yeah. attachment to certain decisions, which is damn hard. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but let's get into kind of where you were going because, cause I think, you know, again, the ability to be able to look at something and go, okay, I'm not going to go and sell out 
you know, I can go and make a lot of this 6% beer. I can probably make a lot of money very quickly. That, that gives me short-term things that I can do. Right. The discipline to not let yourself, it's like, it's like seeing the thing that you want to buy and then buying it when you can't afford it, but it takes discipline to not do it. Yeah, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Right. Like that sort of thing. Right. No, it's totally true. Uh, years ago, uh, during the height of the, this is related, um, at the, at the, and at the height of the pandemic, I caught up with this guy named Greg Fleischman, who's a, a CEO of Foodsters, which is a uh, uh, like they make uh, baking mixes and sweet goods, and you know you can find them at Whole Foods, whatever. Uh, Sarah Michelle Geller of Buffy the Vampire Slayer fame as a co-founder, and um, and they had planned for for like a year or two to roll out these ready-to-eat baked goods products. They had been at that point exclusively a baking mix company. And the pandemic arrived basically right as they were supposed to roll these new products out, which were which was going to radically change the business. Right, they were going from being a baking mix company to a really more broad offering sweet goods company, and um, and so you know changes to everything uh, involved in that. And um, and then the pandemic uh, just screwed all that up. Uh, fun fact about the pandemic was that uh, in the early days, it actually led to a massive spike in baking mix sales because everyone was stuck at everyone home, was looking, home. For, I know. looking for we, something to do. We were trying to distract ourselves from homeschooling. So if we yeah. could get the kids to bake a cake, you know, it's exactly. like, I totally get it. <laughs> That's exactly right. Right. And uh, and meanwhile, uh, sales of ready to eat baked goods plummeted. So they, they had to shelve these plans that they had for like a year or two. And they were very excited, you know, we're going to reinvent the company. And I asked Greg if it was a bummer. You know, just like human level. Was that a bummer? And um, and he said, you know, no, because and here I am quoting him almost directly. Uh, you know, I might have a word or two wrong, but he says it goes back to why do you start a business to begin with? And our mission is to bring joy to people with upgraded mm. sweet baked goods. That's what it's all about. And, you know, he casually tossed that off. But I remember when he said it, I thought, you know, that is a profound thing to have been able to say. Our mission is to bring joy to people with upgraded sweet baked goods. You know what will never run out of style? The need for joy. Never. And so if your business is baking mixes, what's our what's our mission? Our mission is to sell baking mixes. Well, you know what? The inverse of the pandemic may happen one day, and there may be a an, an enormous drop in interest in baking mixes. And at that point, you don't have a business anymore, and you don't even have a purpose anymore. But if your mission is to bring joy to people with upgraded sweet baked goods, well, then it really doesn't matter how you do it. Baking mixes is one idea, but there are many others. And what I found is that people, people as an on an individual level or on a company level, uh, people who are incredibly successful have have gone through some kind of mental exercise like that. And I know that this sounds small and maybe could even sound trite, but it 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 has a it gives you a clarity of purpose that I think is incredibly important. I mean, I've done it for myself. I, I used to I started as a newspaper reporter. That was my first job, and um, then I became a magazine editor. And as you heard earlier in our conversation, you know, I sort of went through this transition where I thought of myself as a magazine guy, and then had to figure out what else I am. Now, um, I have this sentence for myself. It's seven words long. It goes like this: I tell stories in my own voice, and those words are all selected because they are not anchored to anything that is easily changed. I tell stories. That means that if one day 
maybe today, who knows? Uh, I don't have a magazine job anymore, right? Uh, then um, I can still tell stories. That doesn't take that away from me. The more we anchor ourselves to the output of our work, the more we set ourselves up for massive disruption. And so I think that to be successful, something that entrepreneurs need is a real clarity of understanding of the value that they provide to people that isn't anchored to the very specific thing that they do every day. Because that specific thing is going to change. It may run out of style. It may become too difficult to do. Whatever the case is, you are needed. You are going to need to understand the transferable value that you have in the world so that you can make sure that you transfer on time and continue to provide value. Yeah. As you said that, I was thinking about mine, <laughs> which mm. is natural. I mean, for me, it's about helping entrepreneurs realize freedom, wealth, and impact, right? Because I love that. Because if you think about it, what I'm really doing, a lot of people who start a business entrepreneurs, you know, there is a bigger mission behind it. I get all that, but a lot of them are trying to change the paradigm for themselves financially to create freedom, to have different sure. choices. Um, and my role in that is obviously about helping them exit. So yeah, and I get mm -hmm. it. And I love the fact that the more that you define your identity around something that can be changed, you know, maybe from forces that are outside of what you can control, the more that you're setting yourself up for, you know, being, I was going to say depression, but more, more what I mean is um, disappointment, right? You're going to be kind of like attaching yourself to something that you can't really influence. So that's You're cool. I haven't heard, haven't heard someone express it like that before. So that might be the one thing that comes out of this episode. There you go. It, you know, it's often the thing I, I do a version of that and I have a whole exercise that I run people through when I, when I speak to people in groups and it, it is often the thing that people come up to me afterwards and say that they took away. And when I first started doing it, I was a little nervous about it. Cause I was like, Oh, you know, here are these incredibly experienced people. And you know, I'm, I'm giving them this, this, um, this sort of kind of, I don't know, um, hazy uh, personal exercise. But what I found is that everybody is very excited to do just what you did, which is to then start thinking about what is it for mm. themselves. I think it's and powerful. Then, and then very start telling powerful. other people, <laughs> you know, well, I'm going to tell other people now that's going to be something yeah. that I mentioned, you know, uh, when I'm chatting to business owners, because it's funny, because we, we focus a lot on, we call it end game. But what we're really mm. talking about is, you know, work backwards from an outcome right? Mm. Whatever that is. But as you were talking as well, uh, it made me think about um, one of the most successful companies, certainly one of the most successful companies over the last 50 years is Disney, right? Yeah. And their, their kind of brand, if you want to call it, that is about bringing happiness to millions. Yeah. They talk about films, theme parks, toys, characters. They talk about happiness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's universal and it's, it's got longevity. I mean, I can't imagine a time when people aren't going to want to be happy, right? Yeah, that's totally true. And and they are exceptionally good at delivering it because they have an exceptionally clear sense of purpose and they don't stray from it. No. Disney could Disney could make money if they wanted to in getting into other genres, right? Uh, they got the money. You could go out and hire the best uh, horror film writers in the world, make an amazing horror films. A lot of money to be made in that. That's not the mission. That's not the purpose. You stay clear on what you have and you will continue to grow exactly that. Yeah. And when you're consistent, I think with that, so firstly, there's clarity of purpose and then there's consistency of, of delivering to that day in, day out. 
it makes decision making significantly easier. And the other thing I found is when people stray from that, because like Virgin Branson's done that a couple of times yeah. with moving into certain categories they thought they could disrupt. And I'm sure you've looked at this as well. They haven't stayed true to a purpose. They thought they have, but they haven't been clear about it. And therefore it hasn't worked. But I can't really think of a time where Disney's tried to move into an area. I mean, I, there could be some examples, but I don't know them where they haven't been successful because that purpose is like locked down. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, there must be something, but there but must be something. Think... I mean, what, what you were describing to me, just for what it's worth, reminded me of this thing, the, the, again, the sort of the one thing that I can remember Richard Branson telling me, and we had a whole conversation, but I remember this one thing, which was that, which is that I had asked him what he thought drove his success. And his answer was that, Everybody else hires people and then asks them to just do the thing that they already know how to do. And that what he really encouraged people to do when he hired them was to push themselves outside into things that they didn't know that well. And uh, and as a result, he would have people come to him and say, you know, you did not hire me to suggest to you that we should build a, uh, you know, a, a cruise ship or whatever, but I think that we should. And here's why. Um, and he would encourage that stuff. And yeah, sure. You know, I, I mean, well, he had whatever he had the money. Um, you know, they went into a lot of ventures that didn't make any sense, but they also they also hit pay dirt quite a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, you could you could argue that this is counter to the thing that we're talking about right now. I, I'd be very curious how he defined the 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 deeper purpose of Virgin. I I don't know his answer to it because I didn't think to ask him. But um, but I do know that the thing that he believed drove success was was his willingness to think outside of his area of expertise and to encourage the people that he worked with to do the same. And and that I think is something that we all need to be doing, even as we have a clarity of purpose, right? I mean, because in Disney, there are endless ways to bring people happiness. And so what you don't want to do is surround yourself with a bunch of people who have one vision of how to bring people happiness and then just do that over and over again while your competitors meanwhile figure out how to actually make people happy uh you know we need to make sure that we understand within the within the confines of what we're building the infinite ways to express it yeah very nicely said well let's touch on let's touch on your book because i think we've touched around your book <laughs> quite a bit <laughs> actually over the last uh, hour or so but um build for tomorrow obviously it's a yeah. book about adaptability and change um what what were your what's your intent with that what what were you what's your gift to the world with that what were you trying to to suppose influence by writing that book so the book it makes this argument and the argument is that change happens for everybody in four phases panic adaptation new normal and wouldn't go back wouldn't go back being in the moment where people say i have something so new and valuable that i wouldn't want to go back to a time before i had it and uh, my argument is that, like I said, everybody goes through that. It doesn't matter how adaptable they are, how successful they are. Everybody goes through those four phases. Everybody panics. But I think the most successful people are able to move through those stages more efficiently. And the reason they're able to do that is because they have armed themselves with knowledge about their purpose, with structures to be aware of not just what people need now, but where people are going and how they can continue to be valuable. Um, and they are thinking at all times that the thing they, they are building is going to change and therefore they are going to need to change as a result. What I want people to do is learn from those people. The book is uh, it's it's partially the kind of thing that we have done here today 
sharing lessons drawn from anecdotes of people that I, I, I have met who I think are doing things very well. Um, and then also stories from history, uh, which I love. And I've interviewed a bazillion historians about why people resisted the bicycle and why they thought that teddy bears were uh, uh, damaging uh, to humanity. And, you know, all these kind of funny resistances to innovation and change and what it took for people to actually get over them and then what that can teach us about how to navigate change today. Um, and uh, because because I, I believe that at the end of every moment of disruption, there is a wouldn't go back moment waiting for everybody. Yeah. It's not to say that a moment of disruption is always, you know, good or easy. It's not. You can lose a lot of things along the way. But it doesn't serve you very well to spend all your time debating whether something should happen if it has happened. And so instead, what we need to be doing is focusing on how to prepare ourselves for those moments and then how to maximize them, maximize them when they come. And that's what the book really is yeah okay and and good timing <laughs> so yeah. last couple of questions on that so sure you know we've just gone through well have we gone through pandemic i i like to think now that i travel that it kind of was this kind of distant memory because you know i was at nelton john concert about two weeks ago and it was <laughs> it's, it's kind of like COVID never happened right but we've, yeah. we've had this this disruption right we've had this right. thing happen we've got a lot of noise media out there right now about economic recessions mm -hmm. and whatever else what's your advice to you know as someone who's studied this and written a book about it what's yeah. your advice to business owners entrepreneurs as we enter you know what could be quite a disruptive period yeah sure it sure could you know it's i mean it's funny what you said before there about are we in a pandemic when did it you know i i think <laughs> one thing that i've become really fascinated by maybe i should write a book about it because i'd love to just spend a lot of time in the subject is um is what it looks like when things end you know, like you don't always know if you're at the end of something. Some things have definitive ends, but a lot of things don't. Mm, um, like are that. we at the are we at the end of this? What does end look like? Uh, so, um, uh, but anyway, that's for another time. So, what should people be thinking about? Here's what they should be thinking about. I I, I remember in the very very early days of the pandemic, one of the questions that I got a lot from readers was, how do I how do I sell something now? Like I'm in, I have a business, I have a service or product. Uh, I used to send out emails and other marketing, uh, you know, materials to try to connect with customers to sell this. Am I allowed to do that now? Right. I mean, remember those very early days, everyone was just like in a panic, like it, it, all the rules have changed. Like, what can I do? And I, you know, I thought this is a very interesting question and I, I don't really have a good answer to it. Um, and so, because we're in uncharted territory, so what I did was I, um, I, I produced this thing for Entrepreneur where I, I I took one of the people who asked that question. She was like a she was like a copywriter or something like that. You know she she writes marketing copy for people, and um and she used to cold email people and she was like, can I cold email people anymore? And um and I and I connected her with just a very very smart business consultant I know. His name is Adam Bornstein. He's an old friend of mine. And um and I just said, Adam, I just want you to hear her question and I want to hear what your reaction is. And what Adam said in reaction to it was, he was like, look, people are feeling very disrupted right now, but that doesn't mean that they stopped needing things. Right? People need things. And in fact, when there is a massive moment of disruption, 
people need new things. And the what they want most of all is someone who can solve problems for them. Uh, and so the approach might have to be different. The language that you use should be a little different. But to think that we have no value to others simply because something has happened to us and them, that doesn't make any sense. And what I have taken from that and what I think a lot about now is like, you know, when a big moment of disruption comes, uh, and particularly if it's something that impacts everybody, like the pandemic or you know, possible recession or whatever else, um, we cannot be so trapped in our own world that we're only focused on how it's impacting us. And we must instead remember that everyone else is being impacted too. And everyone else still needs things. They need them. They need help. They need solutions. They need joy. They need whatever it is that they need. They need it. And the best thing that we can do is figure out how to meet their new needs now. There's a reason why when you look throughout history and you look at moments of massive disruption, what you see is <clears throat> um, incumbents falling and brand new fresh ideas rising. Right. I mean, like, you know, one of the one of the old cliche stories of the 2008, 2009 recession is that it led to the rise of Airbnb, which is true. And the reason for that is because it it allowed people to imagine different ways of doing something. It also. It also led people to react differently to incentives and it created new opportunities for someone who was able to come along and say, you know what, I'm not anchored to the old ways of doing things. I am listening to what people need right now, and I have a solution for right now. That's a big opportunity. It's not easy. I understand there are financial concerns, but it is what the opportunity is. And so the greatest thing that you can do is try to figure out how to make the most of that. And to draw back a little bit to what we've spoken about over the last hour is, you know, again, if you have a sense of purpose like we both shared ours, yeah. which isn't tied or anchored to something specific, right? That helps, right? Because yeah. that allows you to think more expansively. And the other thing I think is, is that point I made really around being able to operate at that 30,000 foot view. Yeah. Because if you are stuck in all the things that could go wrong, or you're stuck in the granularity of, and this is why, you know, even though I came from the media, I don't really listen much to the media anymore. We can, that's a different conversation. Um, the reason I don't do that is I get distracted, right? Mm -hmm. I get distracted with what everything else is going on. So I think, you know, to summarize that for people, the more that you can take some of these different, I call them tips, traits, um, strategies that we've spoken about today, you know, as we go into whatever we go into, it's going to definitely serve you. I think this com this has been quite a well-rounded conversation, Jason. Yes, it has. <laughs> about change it. and adaptability, because you know, I, I listen all the way through it, but we've actually provided, I think, for people listening, a lot of different examples of things that if they realize what we're really doing here, mm -hmm. we're not really telling stories for the sake of telling stories. We're, we're having a conversation that you can be, you know, thinking about in light with how you're currently going through things, right? You know what I mean? And that's what... Yeah. That's where the real value is. So that, that nailed it, which goes all the way back to something that I said at the very beginning, which is, you know, the goal is to be sharing information in a way in which it connects to the scaffolding that people already have, right? People nice. are listening to this and they're, they're going to be hearing stories and hearing points and attaching them directly to the things that they are currently worried about. And that is exactly the reason why they should be listening in the first place, right? Nobody's listening to this 
in the way that you, um, you know, open up Disney plus, right? Like it's for a different purpose. People come to these kinds of things because they have a challenge and they're trying to grapple with it, which means that our jobs in asking for people's time is to deliver something of tangible value to the purpose of why people listen in the first place. And everyone's going to think that we planned it like that. <laughs> <laughs> listen, Jason, this has been cool, man. Um, so couple of final pieces. What are you excited for next, right, that you're working on? And where can people reach out to you if they want to ask questions, learn about your book, learn about having you speak, that sort of thing? Yeah. So thank you. Um, what am I excited about next? I have a lot of projects bubbling up for 2023. I can't really talk about what they are right now. But in particular, I'll tell you, I, I've I've been building a lot of things myself and I decided to partner with an incredibly smart friend of mine on something. And um, even in the early stages right now, I just cannot tell you how wonderful oh. it is to have another person. I want to know what it is now, but you can't say. To. Oh, um, no, not yet, <laughs> but okay. I'll, I'll, you know, we'll, we'll, you'll find out. Um, okay. I, so uh, anyway, that's just been a delight. Uh, I, I cannot stress uh, partnerships enough. Um, but anyway, how can you reach me? So first of all, again, the book is called Build for Tomorrow. Um, you can find it uh, in any format, uh, that you like, except for stone tablet. We haven't done that one yet, but oh, you know, audiobook. I know we're working on it. Um, <laughs> chiseling is very slow, uh, audiobook, ebook, uh, hard, you know, hardcover, uh, wherever you find books, Amazon or anywhere else. Uh, and, and I did, I do have a UK publisher, so there's the local edition. Um, and, uh, and how can you reach me? So if you go to my website, Jason J A S O N F as in Frank E I F as in Frank E R dot com you can find uh you know ways to reach me uh, learn more about speaking um my newsletter uh, whatever get in touch awesome we'll make sure that's all in the show notes jason but um i just want to say thank you what a great conversation i enjoyed thank that you. as i said oh, lots, so of, fun. lots of different angles we could have i mean as we could have gone in so many different ways with that but i think there was a lot of valuable stuff there to help people so i want to thank you for your time it's a pleasure to meet you and uh, thanks for coming on the show today oh likewise thanks for having me Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show, or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.